So Pastor David, if you don't stop flushing cake pops down Santa's toilet, you're going to lose your cake pop privileges, right? I mean, this is serious business. So good. Come on. Thank you, Selah. We believe in accountability here at the City Life Church. Whether it's coming from your children or not, you will be found out. You will be found out. So, hey, to, to get our thoughts moving in the right direction, uh, th- this is my, my question for you tonight. Where were you in 1985? 1985, come on. Now, now some of you aren't going to have your hands up because you weren't even here in 1985. Sally. You were in Jesus' mind, yeah, yeah, Sally. When when your hand was like, there's no way she was alive in 1985. Somebody else, 1985. Riverside Hospital. Hospital. Were you born in 1985? Nice, nice year. Nice year. Same Same thing, born in 1985. I know you weren't born in 1985. (laughs) Poplar Bluff, Missouri. Poplar Bluff, Missouri. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> They're like some Missourians, yeah. Elementary. elementary school. Somebody else, 1985. 10th grade. 10th grade, Marvin. College in, College in Atlanta. College in Cincinnati, Ohio. Any other 1985ers over here? 1985, working my way to the other side, working my way to the other side. Kim? Graduating high school. Graduating dental school, there you go. Your son was born, come on, Ryan Matthews. Somebody else, 1985. Senior in high school, Jim. Raising kids in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Come on. Middle school. Look at Tara's like, what? You people are old, that's what you're, what were you thinking, Tara? Tell us, tell us, no, Okay. You were at Christopher Newport when it was a college. Okay, hey, 1985. All right, so we're going to do a little little trivia here, a little test your knowledge of 1985. I've got some giveaways I'm going to do. So let's throw up the first slide, 1985. Where are the rest of their shorts? Can we ask that question? <laughs> they played basketball in these in 1985. This wasn't a costume. This is what they wore crazy. 19, NBA champs, 1985. Who, who was it? Chris House? Who were the NBA champs, 1985? Showtime Lakers. Showtime Lakers. There you go. Yeah. He's a big, he's a big Lakers fan. Who did they beat? Anybody know? Boston Celtics. Yeah, I know. All right, let's do the next one. St. Elmo's Fire. There you go. Nice. Yeah, St. Elmo's Fire, I know. You guys are too young to be answering the 1985. You were close, though. You were close. You know, okay. Gotcha, all right, all right. Now, this is going to make your stomach turn right here, because if we had just put a little bit of, what is? what was it, Celeste? Two dollars! Apple stock was $2 in 1985. Can you believe that? You can't, get, you can't get an empty box out of the trash can from Apple for $2 now, right? $2. All right, I got one more. Top artist, I got to get my sheet here. Bruce Springsteen, 1985. He was on the Billboard charts. Somebody else. 
Madonna. Michael Jackson was not on there, actually. Somebody else. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking for my favorite. I haven't heard it yet. Cindy Lauper. Duran Duran. Yep. Anybody else? Not, not Whitney Houston? Grit? No. Oh, Prince. No, yeah, yeah. Prince was not on the top ten. Not on the top. He was on there, but he wasn't, he wasn't there yet. There was George Michael. There was Foreigner. Tears for Fears. Dire Straits. Phil Collins. All right, you ready? The last one, which nobody said, so the giveaway stays, was Shaka Khan. Shut up. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan, right? I'm not going to sing the rest of it. That's all I got. That's all I got. You, 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 you can look that up in iTunes if you want the, the, not, the non-white version. There you go. Hey, man, happy birthday, Nathaniel. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. A little iTunes gift card there. <laughs> Keyboard player tonight, sharing his birthday, 1985. All right, let's, let's look at the last one. This is where I was in 1985. Yeah, I had hair in 1985. And I was looking at, this was for my senior prom in 1985, graduated high school in 85. And I realized for the first time, I'm 51, it took me a long time to get here. I realized for the first time looking at these pictures that, that my date and I actually had the same haircut. Right? Right? And I'm pretty sure we both probably used the same amount of hairspray to get it to stay that way. Yeah. Unfortunately, all mine fell out, so... 1985, and I had a mustache, yeah, right, I know, it is scary, isn't it? Although that doesn't qualify for a mustache, I'm just saying, so. All right, last giveaway here, somebody gave this to donate. This is highly recommended by uh, Pastor Chris Ball, who's the president uh, of Elam Fellowship, which is the fellowship we're a part of. Uh, he spoke about this book at a conference that we were at recently. It's called The TechWise Family. Uh, so this is for a parent. This is for a parent. So this is how we do some giveaways here at City Life. You've got to demonstrate some courage to come get it. But there you go. All right, there you go. Come on. Come on. I like it. I like it. So, so let me ask you another question. 1985 was 33 years ago. Three decades and three years. 33 years ago. 33 years from now. 33 years from now. Who in the 757, when they're thinking about 2018, when they're thinking back like we're thinking back, right? Those of you that were alive in 1985 and you're thinking back to that year and where you were and, and what you were doing, right? It's interesting how those questions can just take us right back in time and it's like we were there yesterday. 33 years from now, who in the 757 is going to look back to 2018 and say that's the year that somebody from the City Life Church talked to me about Jesus? That 2018 was the year that I heard about the gospel for the first time. Whether they are a stranger to you, and maybe they'll only ever be a stranger, and maybe you're not even ever going to know the story until you get to heaven. But who here in the 757, even if they don't know your name, they're going to see your face. They're going to say, that man, that woman, that person in 2018 invited me to church, told me about Christ, talked to me about the gospel. Father, we know that you have planted us inside the story of other people's lives and that you have given us a sacred responsibility to talk to the world about your son and our savior. 
And we pray, Father, that you would find us faithful in every story that we're supposed to be a part of. That one day, 33 years from now, that there's going to be people all throughout this region that they're going to see us, they're going to know our name because it was the year that someone told them about Jesus. Come on, and it's in his name we pray, and everybody said together, Amen. You know that we've been in this series called 2.5. It's been challenging us. I hope it's been inspiring us. It's been inspiring me in my own study to take more seriously the responsibility that we have to talk to people about Christ and our everyday throughout the week. And over this series, we talked about this idea of it never being too late. You can get all of this on the podcast or through the church website, citylifeva.com. We also post our notes. I like to mention this every week because we cover a lot of textual ground and our message. It's a teaching pulpit here. So if you're a note taker, sometimes we move quicker uh, than what you can write down. And so there's always a PDF online that has the outline of the message and all the textual references. So the week after that, we talked about the two crowds. And last week, we talked about the two ways and the two gates. And we explained the language there. There's some interplay of language. You peel back the surface. You find there in the original Greek that there's some revelation for us to help us to understand the difference between the ways and the gates. And tonight, I want to talk more about this idea of the narrow way, the narrow way. Last week we introduced the, the, the verse is going to pop up on the screen. Let's jump, Katie, to the next one that gives it to us with the Greek words there. And so narrow is, is stenos. That's the first time that Jesus uses the word narrow. And that's not just spatial. It means exclusive. It means the only way you can pass through the gate to have the hope of heaven is through Christ. And we taught all through this text last week, which you can get on the podcast. But as you get down to Towards the end, we find that he talks about the way, even though the English Bible often calls it narrow and narrow, although the New American Standard does a good job of letting us know there's a slight difference here. It talks about the gate being small, but then it talks about the way being narrow, and it's this Greek word thalibo, and it means pressed or difficult or resistance. It, not just in the sense that it's really narrow and small so that you're kind of jammed in single file and it's hard to get through it because you've got to wait for the person in front of you right, to move faster like the tourists that we're getting ready to come into that as soon as they get to the HRBT they think they have to drive 30 miles an hour because it's a tunnel, right? You're like, no, I know you don't have tunnels in Montana but you can speed up for the love of God. So anyways, <laughs> just getting that off my chest. So, so this idea, it's not about it being narrow and, and that we can't all fit through it. it this word thlebo means resistance. It's the, it's the word that would be used to talk about what happens to grapes when they're put in a wine press. It means they're squeezed. It means that, that there is a, 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 a persecution of sorts that's experienced. This is Jesus saying to you and to me, this is what the way is like. We talked last week about how the way leads up to the gate. So oftentimes we refer to the Christian life as the straight and narrow, and, and that's probably a fair description, but if your description of that is connected to this verse, we're misunderstanding what Jesus was saying. Jesus isn't talking about the Christian life after you make a vow of devotion to Christ. The way is referencing the experience every person has 
before they make a vow of devotion to Christ, meaning that there is resistance that you've got to push through if you're going to make it through the gate. I love the prophetic sharing that came spontaneously out of the worship with Sharon and Kim because this is what we're talking about tonight. Sometimes there's this, this it's darkness, there's a, there's a weightiness that you experience and for some of you here, you're experiencing that because you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ and you're close to the gate and there's a resistance that you've got to push through. There is resistance on the way to the gate. Imagine if we took a bunch of people and filled this aisle right here from front to back. I mean, we filled it up to, to the point that, that it would be hard for you to even see through it. And, and then we ask for a volunteer and, and we said, you start here and we want you to try to work your way through this aisle to get through that door, which is the gate that's waiting for you on the other side. And then we instructed all the people that were in the aisle, your job is to keep them from passing through. Now you can imagine how hard that would be for you to work your way through. And maybe there's some people that you could pass by more easily than others, but it would be arduous. It would be difficult. In this teaching that Jesus gives at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying this is what it's like for people who were weighing a decision for Christ. They're on a path that is pushing against them because something inside of them is resisting the decision to surrender their hearts to Christ. Jesus is giving us this teaching because he wants people that are on their way to this decision to understand what they're going to experience. But we're talking about it tonight because I believe that he wants those of us who have already made a vow of devotion to Christ to remember what it was like for us. Because if we don't remember the resistance that we ourselves had to push through, sometimes we can become insensitive and impatient with those that are on the way now. Part of evangelism, the reason why it fails with us is because we, we lose sight of the difficulty that it is for people. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the responsibility that we have to get into that aisle and to make a way for them, to be a lead blocker for them of sorts to help them find their way. I wanna to talk to you tonight about three resistance experiences that people have. I think there's lots of resistance. This isn't a comprehensive list, but I think these are three that are the most significant, the most common. The first one is pressing past ideology. There's an ideological resistance that people experience so often before they make a vow of devotion to Christ. The ideolo ideological resistance are beliefs that they hold on to that are contrary to Scripture. Beliefs that they have formed, sometimes even beliefs about Christianity that they have formed, and those beliefs, when they're, when they're opposite of what Scripture teaches, that those beliefs actually serve as a resistance as they're trying to press their way through to Christ. Listen to these verses in Luke 19, 36 to 40. It's interesting as you overlay this text with the, the triumphal entry, as this is Palm Sunday weekend, you find this, this interesting contrast between Matthew 7 and here in the triumphal entry. In Luke 19, 36 to 40, it says, as he rode along, speaking of Christ, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. 
Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Some translations talk about, they, they sang the song, Hosanna, Hosanna, and, and that was a declaration by Jewish people that only salvation can come through this one. It was their way. It was acknowledging that Christ was the Messiah. But listen to verse 39. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. It's a powerful picture of life. There are those that see Christ with great clarity. Of course he's the Messiah. Of course he's my Savior. There's a self-evidencing quality, especially for those of us who made a vow of devotion to Christ. I made a vow of devotion to Christ back in, in 1990. And here, right, decades later, there's the, the idea of Jesus being my Savior. It's just, it's plain. But then you have in the story of the triumphal entry, there were other people in the crowd, and they're going, Jesus, you should tell these people to be quiet. They're blaspheming. They're calling you God. We have to remember that when people are on this path of life, not everybody sees Jesus the same way. They have beliefs that they have bought into that keep them from seeing Christ for who he is and it's ideological resistance. Who Jesus is in the text is unchanging. It's people's perception of him that stand in contrast with one another. So we had some plumbing issues a few weeks ago. And uh, was Vanessa giggling over there? Yeah, I know. I'm cheap. I like to try to do it myself, right? I, I got to do it. I got to try. I have to try. I mean, I always end up calling the plumber. So at some point, I should just start there. But you know that's not going to happen, right? So, so, so we had all the sinks in the upstairs were stopped up. All of them. I mean, stopped up. And they had been slowing down. We should have bought stock in Drano because we've been using some Drano over the last, over the last year. And so finally, I was like, you know, I've had enough. I'm going to figure this out. And so uh, I, I took apart all the, the underside of the sinks in the, in the kids' bathroom and had a little manual, you know, Roto-Rooter, and I'm trying to get it through the pipes. And of course, nothing's working. And so, so eventually, which right, I always end up having to do, I make the call and the plumber comes in a couple of days and we've got buckets under the sinks. And, and, uh, and so he, he ultimately has to get up on the roof and clean it from the vent pipe all the way down. It was so clogged. House is built in the 70s. It, it was draining slow when we bought it a few years ago. So we knew eventually that it was going to need to be a problem. So right as he's leaving, I'm thinking that, you know, you're able to put back all that stuff I took apart. And he says, I, I, if you took it apart, that's on you. I was like, darn, right? Come on. I won't tell if you won't tell, right? So, so anyway, so he doesn't put it back together and I had to do, figure that out myself. But he, but he got it on unclogged. And so as, as he's there, right, I, I'm thinking, this is what I'm thinking to myself, is that I got to talk to this guy about Christ, right? How there's a stranger that comes into my house and it's not about plumbing. Like something has to happen in our perspective in this life to ask God the question, is this someone's story that I'm supposed to be a part of? He was clearly Middle Eastern in his ethnicity. His name was Khalid, and, 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 and I knew that the, it could be that no one has ever talked to him about the gospel, ever, ever. 
So as we're signing the, you know, the paperwork and finishing up, I, I said, Khalid, I said, if you wouldn't mind me asking, you know, what, what's your country of origin? Where, what, what's, what's your, the country that your, your family is, is from? And, and, uh, and so he was talking about being from north, the, coast, the northern coast of Africa and where he grew up. And, and, uh, and, and so I asked him, I said, are, you know, are you, do you, do you, do you, are you a practicing Muslim? And he said, yes, I am. And, and, uh, and he said, what do you do for work? And so I got to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a minister and and so we begin to have this conversation and so I asked him you know about have you ever heard of, of Jesus and and he said yes he said the Quran talks about about Jesus a lot and and so he began telling me certain parts of the Quran and and, and what it talks about and and so I said has has anybody ever talked to you about about Christianity and becoming a Christian and, and he said I, I'm not really interested in becoming a Christian and I said, really? I said, why is that? And he said, well, he said, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but anybody who, who commits themselves to Christ can get into heaven, right? I was like, yeah, this guy knows the gospel, right? I mean, he's on it. And he said, no matter what they've done, they can go. I said, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the Bible talks about grace. And, and he said, I don't, I don't like that idea of grace. He said, because he said, I don't think that people who murder people should be able to get into heaven. I think that it's just wrong. And so he began to talk about the religion of Islam. And, and, and so then I'm thinking to myself, how can you not think that grace is good, right? I mean, so this is, the, this is what we're talking about here. There are certain things that we believe and we're like, of course this is what's gonna help them break through. But to Khalid, he's like, I don't want a, any part of any religion that treats everybody the same. I don't want to be a part of that kind of religion. And so, so you know, and, and I, so I had a revelation in that moment is that we make assumptions when we're talking people, to people about Christ about what's going to help them push through. And if we're not careful, we don't take the time to ask the questions to understand where they're coming from. And so we had this great conversation. So he began to, it was hilarious, so he began to, come up with every scenario he could think of. Well, what about if they did this, right? And it's like stump the pastor. And, 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 so, and, and so finally I said, I said, Khalid, did you know that, that Christianity also talks about there being rewards in heaven? Did you know? Because I'm praying the whole time, God, you got to give me something, right? And so, so I said, you know, so I felt like the Holy Spirit prompted me to share with him. I said, I said, Khalid, did you know that, that yes, grace if everybody sincerely asks for forgiveness and makes a vow of devotion to Christ, it does not matter what they've done to get into heaven. But once you get there, once you get there, I believe the Bible talks about rewards for how faithful you were in this journey. And you could see that, that something began to shift for him because no one had ever talked to him about that part of Christianity before. Now, our conversation didn't go much farther than that, but it's part of this idea and this belief that Paul talks about to the church of Corinth that one man plants, another man waters, but it's God that gives the increase. Sometimes your part is to just participate in the story and trust that other people have come before you and other people are going to come after you so that at some point he's going to come to a place where Khalid. And so when, I think it was Sharon was talking about saying someone's name during the worship song. So I began to, to talk to, to God about Khalid, that, that God is gonna bring him to a place of clarity with the gospel. What motivates me might be resistance to others. 
Listen to Mark 1, 29 to 34. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home, and now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever, and they told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside and took her by the hand and helped her set up, and then the fever left her. And she prepared a meal for them, and then that evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered outside the, the door to watch. This is thousands of people. Right? These aren't bumps and boo-boos. Demon-possessed people. Sickness in the sense that they're going to die if God doesn't intervene. This is the whole town gathered outside the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, but because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. That's for another sermon for another time. The beginning of verse 32, listen to what it says. That evening after sunset, that evening after sunset, they knew Jesus was in there. They started arriving by the hundreds during the day, standing in line. How many people here like to stand in line? Yet yeah, none of us. But it wasn't until after the sunset were they willing to knock on the door and ask Jesus to come out and to help them. They weren't there because they had trivial needs that needed to be met. There were mothers standing in that line with babies that were dying. People that were there with their children because they were demon-possessed and they just waited. Who's waiting in that line? I'm not waiting in that line. I'm sorry. Are, are you, okay, I'm just going to keep going. I'm, right? I'm going to work my way all the way up to the door. Oh, Jesus is in there? But if you and I had been there 2,000 years ago and had been devout Jews like they were, guess what? We would have waited in that line too. Because we were, would have grown up being taught that the Sabbath day had all of these rules that were heaped upon it and, and, and that it was an egregious sin to violate the code of working on the Sabbath. It's fascinating, isn't it? All of these people standing in line, not even knowing if they're going to make it until sunset, but they would not cross that boundary, that ideological boundary to get the help that they needed. This is people still today. There are beliefs that they have that keep them from passing through the gate that is narrow and making that vow of devotion to Christ. And just as Jesus began to do in his ministry to patiently and lovingly begin to help people understand where they had bought into beliefs that were not true, that we have the same responsibility today. People who are gifted in apologetics are a great gift to this world. Ravi Zacharias, Timothy Keller, Lee Strobel. If you have friends and coworkers and neighbors who are experiencing ideological resistance, there's just there's beliefs that they have about Christianity and you know that they're not true, getting one of these books, giving it to them as a gift can be a great help. But at the end of the day, apologetics can only answer questions. The only thing that turns a person's heart is trust. So give these books, have these conversations, but most importantly, talk to them about reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, if they're going to read anything, point them to something where they're going to begin to discover Jesus Christ himself. It's only when trust begins to well up in their heart for who Jesus is will they experience the power to push past the ideological questions that are pressing against them.
2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons. Kim referenced this verse as she was sharing earlier. Not worldly weapons. To knock down the strongholds of human reasoning. What's he talking about? He's talking about ideological resistance and destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And after you've become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. Now, you've got to be careful with verses like this. Or you will become the hulk of evangelism and smash and break everything along the way. Right? Paul here is talking about the impact that our witness should have in the world with people that are struggling with ideological resistance. But this is not methodology. It is the result of the methodology, and the methodology is one of humility and patience. You and I have to be humble, humble. It's a hard thing for people to press past competing beliefs. You've made it through, but they're still in the narrow way. Let's talk about the next one, pressing past mystery. Pressing past mystery. These are the questions that people have that will never be answered. As people are working their way towards, right, they're, they're on this journey. It's their season of making a vow of devotion to Christ. And as they're approaching this decision, there's resistance that they're going to have. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. And some of the resistance comes from the resistance of mystery, Matthew 21, 1 through 6 reads this way. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there. So we're, we're backing up in time in the story of the triumphal entry, and now this is before they get there, and this is in preparation. He says, as soon as you enter, you'll see a donkey that's tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Listen to what it says. It says, this took place to fulfill the prophecies that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. That's a prophecy that happened centuries before. You can find it in Zechariah 9, 9. So the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. And if you continue reading the story, you'll find that everything happened just like Jesus had said. Professor Peter Stoner from a book that he wrote years ago called Science Speaks dealt with the statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of him. Listen to this. The probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even just eight of the 60 major Old Testament prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That would be that's one in 100, and then write yourself out 15 more zeros. That's a big number. So he goes on to explain it for us. He said, that's enough silver dollars, one, the, the 10 to the 17th power, that's enough silver dollars that you could cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. That's a big number. And then one... Intent to the 17th power, that probability is the same probability that if you covered the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep and you blindfolded someone and put them in Dallas, right? Put them in Dallas, 
blindfolded them and then just told them to leave. And as they stumbled out of that city, they would have to go in the right direction. And then the first time that they bent over to pick up a coin, the one that they're supposed to find, they would find it on the first try. Right? That's impossible. That's what one and 10 to the 17th power means. And that's the probability of Jesus just fulfilling eight of the Old Testament prophecies, and he fulfilled them all. God does an incredible job of debunking many of the mysteries, but he does not remove them all. He does not remove them all. There are certain things where God goes to great lengths, like this idea as you're reading through the Gospels and the Holy Spirit inspiring the Gospel writers to point out the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And then as, as math evolved over time like it has now, we begin to understand the nature of this statistical probability. And then all of a sudden, it is as though there's just no mystery to it anymore, but it does not remove every mystery that there is. There will always be mysteries. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, 12 through 13. It says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity, talking about when we get to heaven. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. What's Paul saying? He's saying, even though God has removed many of the mysteries, there are still mysteries. There are still questions that we're going to have that we're not ever going to know the answers to. And some, for some people, this is is the resistance that they're having to push through. Many of you have had conversations with people that are close to that place of making a decision for Christ, but it's hard for them because they've got questions like, if God is a God of love, then why does he let evil things happen? There are mysteries. Listen to what Paul says. But then I will know everything completely just as God knows me. He said at some point there will be no more mysteries at all. When we get to heaven, that we're going to know the answer to every question just, just as clearly as God knows me. And this is where he takes this turn in verse 13. And there's a reason why verse 13 comes after this conversation about mystery. He says three things will last forever, faith and hope and love, and the greatest of these is love. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying you can't let the things that are uncertain overshadow the things that are certain. In fact, what Paul's saying is that when you begin to remind yourself of the things that you are certain about, it helps you to find the faith that you need for the things that you're uncertain about. Paul's saying here that faith and hope and love, you've all experienced faith. You've all experienced hope. You've all experienced love. Every person has some degree of certainty about these three things in their life. This is part of Paul encouraging us as we're reaching out to people who, who are experiencing the mystery of resistance that in our conversation at some point, we've got to turn it away from the things that they're unsure about and start talking to them the things that they are certain about. It's this idea that when they're asking all the, right, stump the pastor questions about God and if God could do anything, can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up, right? Those kinds of questions that People ask about faith. At some point, you've got to start asking your questions. You can say in a, in a respectful way, tell me, tell me the things about God that you believe. Tell me the things about, about God that, that, that you know with certainty. And I think that you might be surprised that most people at least have a couple of things that they're certain about. See, at some point, belief in the certainty gives me faith in the mystery it gives me faith in the mystery. 
Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Listen to these verses. When you begin to connect these verses in the Bible together, right, there's just truth that pours out of them. Don't worry about anything. What's Paul talking about? He's saying, hey, the mysteries, you can't get rid of them all. You can't. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 8, right, we, 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 we talked about this last We have such a tendency to overcompartmentalize the Bible. And so we take these verses that are so popular and we repeat them over and over by themselves. And sometimes we lose sight of the context, which gives us so much greater insight. There's a reason why in verse 8 he says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable and think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy. This is a great verse for you to remember. I remember memorizing this verse years ago. T-N-R-P-L-A. I remember those, those six letters. Everything that's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and then everything that's excellent and praiseworthy. Why does Paul talk about fixing your thoughts on these things right after he talked about wrestling with things that you don't know? Because he's saying to you and he's saying to me, the only way that you're ever going to push past the resistance of the mystery is to keep reminding yourself of the things that you're certain about. As you're talking with people about Christ and you can see that they're close to the gate, for them it could be that these mysteries are going to be their resistance and you've got to be ready to talk with them about the things that you know to be true and dig around a little bit and help them to find the same. You gotta be patient. You gotta be humble when you're dealing with ideological things and you gotta be patient when you deal with mysteries. It's, it's a hard thing for people to press past the questions. You've made it through, but they're still in the narrow way. Let's do one more. Pressing past the history. Somebody say history. For many people, The things that are standing in the aisle that are keeping them to get through the gate is the history that they already have with the church and Christianity. Matthew 21, 12 through 14, it says, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. It's not that that he cared that there was buying and selling because this is part of the Mosaic law for making sacrifices. The the problem he had is that they were upcharging everybody for everything like they do at Bush Gardens. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, right? He's just tearing it up, flipping over tables. He only did this twice. He did it right at the beginning of his ministry and right at the end. Jesus bookended his public ministry by rioting. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Listen to verse 14. The blind and the lame came into the temple and he healed them. Jesus was getting rid of the junk to make room for the real ministry that needed to happen in that place. And most of those people, they weren't coming in because they couldn't afford what everybody else was telling them they needed to have to be there. They had history with religion. And that history was keeping them on the other side of the gate. People in our lives, they have history with Christianity. And a lot of times their history is no different from this history and it's ugly. And you and I have an opportunity to do something about that. 
Listen to John 18, four through 11. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? This is Jesus now in the Garden of Gethsemane. I know we're jumping back and forth in time here, so now we've moved forward in time. We're into next weekend for Easter. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And as Jesus said, I am he, they all fell to the ground. Come on. His glory. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus the Nazarene, I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the, the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those that you have given me, right? That was in his prayer in John 17 that's recorded for us. Then Simon, right? You got to love Peter. He pulls out a sword and he slashes off the ear of Malchus, right? The high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? In the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus bent down, picked up the ear of the slave and healed him right there in the moment. Now, you would have think after they fell down when he said his name and after they saw him put an ear back that had been severed by a sword, that that would have been enough for all of them to leave. God's will has a way of being fulfilled no matter what the circumstance. And it was God's will for Jesus to give his life for you and for me. So that when people are making their way down the way that is narrow and having to push through the resistance that wants to keep them from passing through the gate of the vow of devotion to Christ, not only are we there with them to help them push through, but so is the presence of Christ. We teach about this text at least once a year. Because this is the story of too many people in our city. They're walking around like Malchus, holding their ear because Peter represents prophetically the church in the New Testament. And people are walking around wounded because the church that was supposed to heal them has hurt them. And you and I are supposed to bring the ministry of the presence of Christ into these people's lives so that that ear can be restored. What does that ear represent? That ear represents their own ability to hear from God. That ear represents the, the ability to once again trust the church. To right, Peter, he goes from slicing off people's ears to denying Christ to being restored, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then giving the sermon. I don't wonder if in Acts 2, when Peter's up there preaching, if Malchus isn't in the crowd going, hey, that's the guy that cut my ear off, right? You got a lot of people that don't want to come to church on Easter because they've been in church on Easter before and they left bleeding. Evangelism means that we got to be humble. It means that we've got to be patient. And it means we got to be understanding. It's hard it's hard for people to press past the hurt. You've made it through, but they're still in the narrow way. Just have a couple of more verses for you. I know we're off the clock just a little bit. Romans 10, Romans 10, 14 and 17. But how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? How can they know who to trust if they haven't heard the one who can be trusted? How can they hear if nobody tells them? This is out of the Message Bible. 
And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? That's why scripture exclaims a sight to take your breath away, grand processions of people telling all the good things of God. But not everybody, listen to what Paul says, not everybody is ready for this. Not everybody's ready to see or to hear or to act. Isaiah asked what we all ask at one time or another, does anyone even care about God? Is anyone listening or believing a word of it? What is Paul saying? Paul's trying to encourage us. Just because you're going out and be faithful, being faithful in the command of evangelism, don't think that, that everybody every time is just going to fall down and surrender their hearts. Paul's saying, I'm sending you out. you got to go do this, but you got to be prepared for disappointment. you got to be prepared for frustration. There's going to be times where you're coming back and you're saying, God, I'm doing what you're telling me to do. But these people, they're just not listening. Paul says, you can't let what you see stop you from being obedient to the call. The point is, Paul says, before you trust, you have to listen. But unless Christ's word is preached, there's nothing to listen to. So many times we're just a part of the story Will you do your part? Will you do your part? So going all the way back to the end of last week's message, Matthew 7, 12. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. This is the last thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount before he gives us the great close of this famous sermon that begins in verse 13 where he talks about the gates and the trees and the fruits and the foundations and the storms and the sinking sand and the solid rock. Right before that, he says, do unto others is what you would have them do unto you. Why does he say it there? Why does he, why does he put it in this place? Because he's saying at some point you were the person that was on the wide way headed toward the wide gate passing the point of no return and there were other people who cared about you enough to talk to you about Jesus. And God is saying here in this text, if you want people to do that for you, why won't you do that for them? If you wanted people to come to your rescue, when you couldn't save yourself, why aren't you willing to do that for others? Something in this series has got to turn our heart towards the world. Recognize that we're surrounded by people every day who are fighting through the crowd of the way, trying to get to the gate, and God has put you in their life to help them get through ideological resistance, history resistance, mystery resistance, be the one that comes alongside to encourage them to keep pressing on. Stand with me. The worship team's gonna come back. And Father, as we step into this moment of worship, God, I, I wanna go back to what Kim and, and Sharon were sharing at the end of the last worship set, that there, there are people here, God, we know, and the darkness that they're experiencing is the frustration that they have that it feels like every time that they're walking in evangelism that there's never any fruit. And we pray that tonight, Father, that that weightiness, oh God, that it would just get lifted from their shoulder. And they would remember that they're not responsible for the result because, Holy Spirit, that's your work. They're responsible to be the messenger. 
And I pray that tonight as we worship through this song together, that for that person, that the weightiness that they've been feeling, the darkness of just feeling unqualified and and incapable and unworthy because it just seems to never work out, that they're just going to have an incredible sense of freedom as we sing this song. That they're just going to be faithful in the sharing and trusting that you are going to be faithful in the turning of the hearts. And Father, I pray too that as we step into this moment of worship for what Sharon shared, God, that there are people that we already know, God. There's names in our heads right now. And Father, as we sing this song, God, that we're going to bring these names to you. And like we said last week, we're going to be the person that's asking and seeking and knocking for them to make it through the way, to pass through the gate. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.